1 Corinthians 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15, we are in verses 34 to 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 34 to 49. If you need a Bible, they're in the seat in front of you underneath it. So we've been going through this letter. Paul is writing to a church that is in some real moral trouble. They are fighting about anything and everything. And they're even fighting over not whether or not there's bodily resurrection from the dead. Somehow they convolutedly want to say Jesus was raised from the dead, but there's no resurrection bodily after that. So Paul's writing this chapter to correct that error. And in our section, we're going to be looking at what the bodily resurrection is actually like. I want to I hit a few things in this sermon. I want to look at verse 34, this word shame. I want to touch on verse 36, Paul's use of the word fool, and then help you hopefully to understand how you'll be raised bodily and what that bodily resurrection will be. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let me read these verses, pray, and then talk a bit about shame first. Wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You fool. Or fools, it's just one word. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of its seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven." Just as we have borne the image of the, du- of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray. Father, please give us understanding of, according to your word. May your law now be our delight. Keep us from going astray, for we do not want to forget your commandments, so help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So first, again, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection, bodily dead. The first 34 verses, Paul is saying there is resurrection from the dead. And he argues that there is bodily resurrection because Christ was raised bodily. So that's the first 34 verses in a nutshell. Verse 17, Christ has been raised. Okay, so when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised with a body. He ate, he drank, they could touch him. He had a body. And Paul is saying if Jesus was raised bodily, all who were in Christ were raised bodily as well. Then at verse 35, we have a bit of a turn until the end of the chapter, verse 58. Paul's no longer arguing that there is bodily resurrection. He's going to show now how we're raised and even more so what the bodily resurrection will be. So that's what he's going to do in the second half here. So he's answering two questions. How will your body be raised from the dead if you're in Christ? And what will your raised body be like? So the first answer is how is by the same power that raised Christ. The second answer, what, is that it'll still be your body, but immortal, imperishable, far greater glory. Right? So very simply, brothers and sisters, here it is, Christians, you will be raised by the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And second, your body will be your body, perfected, glorious imperishable, immortal. It'll be no longer prone to temptation or sin or sickness or any such thing. Okay? So it'll be you. They recognized Jesus. They knew what he looked like after he was raised. He had a body. It was his body. But it was perfect. That's it in a nutshell. What I want to do, though, is I want to get there by first considering this word shame and then the question asked in verse 35 and Paul's answer in verse 36. So at the end of verse 34, Paul does something that is utterly unforgivable, if I could do it that way in our day. Now before I do this, I, 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 I want to, this is going to be hard. And many of you are going through hard stuff right now. You have fathers, several of you that are failing. Uh, surgeries and illness. And the preaching of God's word, it is to be hard. <laughs> it is. It's to be hard in order ultimately to bring comfort. But for those of you going through very difficult things, the end of the sermon will be more helpful to you maybe than what I'm going to do for the next 15 minutes when you consider resurrection and so I don't mean to add to your burden, those of you already carrying one. Um, I really did debate with myself, should I do this, should I do this? There's already enough hard stuff. And yet here it is in God's word, and this is an area in our day where we are very susceptible to a seriously eternal error. And I, I need to hit it, but... Uh, I, God's grace to those of you who are suffering. I maybe said that just to protect myself from those who are going to get mad at me. So 
full disclosure. And then maybe I said that because you know that's what I said. Now I even look better. You'll have to figure it out. So verse 34, you ought to be ashamed. You should be ashamed of yourself. That's what he says to him. Doesn't that make you cringe? Because you can't say that today. Shame is... The only people who should be ashamed are those who are telling others that they should be ashamed for things that are shameful today. And so parents know that you can't say to your kids, you should be ashamed of yourself because that's bad. Irregardless if your kids are doing something that's very shameful. We live in a shameless society. Completely shameless. I would commend to you a really good book on this issue called The Grace of Shame. In it, he quotes a Confucius scholar. A man must not be without shame, for the shame of being without shame is shamelessness indeed. The worst thing for you is to be without shame. And yet in our culture, the worst thing for you to be is to have any shame. Shame is bad. But in the Bible, shame is a grace of God. Shame, in the good sense, is a good gift of God for us. What do I mean? Well, shame is very painful. Shame is embarrassing. It's very, very difficult. It is meant to be for your soul what physical pain is for your body. I told you many times my dad was an electrician. And from the youngest ages, I worked with him. And from the youngest ages, I was electrocuted. <laughs> you learn not to do that because it hurts. Sometimes really bad. And that's telling your body, don't do that again. It causes pain. It could cause real damage. Maybe even could kill you. So don't do it. Shame is that for your soul. When you engage or desire things that in of themselves are abhorrent, contrary to God, they are supposed to cause your soul pain, shame. Why? So that you're awake to that this is bad. This will harm your soul. This will hurt your conscience. This could lead you away from the living God. This could lead you into judgment, eternal ruin. Don't touch. But in our day, we hate each other because we remove shame over everything because we would rather have people go to hell than experience shame. Now, don't do what you're prone to do right now, which is look at the world and not yourself. Don't do that right now. It is going to be very easy for you to poke holes in the world here 
But you got to start with you. You. With where you need to have shame. With where you need to examine yourself and be honest with yourself for your thoughts and your inclinations and your desires and your actions, which are really shameful, and where you need the good gift of shame to do its work to bring you to true repentance. Here's how saints of old used to talk about this. This is from 1689. Talking about repentance. Saving repentance is a grace of God by which a person is made to feel by the Holy Spirit the manifold evils of his sin. We don't even know what that means anymore. We avoid that feeling at all costs. They're praying and saying that it is a good gift of God by his Holy Spirit for you to feel how evil your sin is. And being given to faith in Christ, here it is, humbles himself over his sin with godly sorrow, detestation or hatred of his sin, and here it is, self-abhorrence. And then in parentheses, they define self-abhorrence as disgust or shame. That true repentance only happens when you know real shame over your sin. That's what Paul is doing for the Corinthian church. Why? Why would Paul say this to them? Shame on you. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Why would he say such a thing? In our day, we would say it's because he hates them. No, no. What Christians would say is, Paul, their identity is in Jesus. They're forgiven. They shouldn't feel shame. Right? We would call on Paul to be more gracious and more kind. Because we don't love him like Paul loves him. Because we're wiser than Paul the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle who saw Jesus raised from the dead. We know better. Shame is bad, Paul. He's got skin in the game, by the way. He spent three years there preaching the gospel. He suffered physically and financially. He's their father, and he's a good one. He sits down with his children and he says, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Because he loves them. Because he wants to bring them to true repentance. Because he knows Jesus' words in Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he wants that day to go well. And so in his day, he's willing to cause them shame. All right, parents, apply this. You need to bring the good gift of shame to your children where it's needed. Now, there is bad shame, right? What is bad shame? Let me read again from Grace of Shame. 
There is false shame, and it can be used as a means of oppression. In Nazi Germany, Jews were forced to wear the yellow star, making them feel shame for not belonging to the Aryan race and subjecting them to public scorn. Christians must discern between true and false shame. True shame is a result of falling short of the standard set by God in his word, whereas false shame is connected with falling short of man-made cultural standards that have nothing to do with the standard set by God's word. We're talking here about true shame because it's loving. Because it's loving. So, let me apply this just in a couple ways to your life. One, learn to use the biblical words for sin. They're shameful words. Don't call sin a mistake, bad choice. Call it what it is. Use with your children with your spouse, with other Christians in the church, with yourself, use the biblical words for sin. If you lie, call it a lie. If you're in fornication, call it fornication. If you're in the sin of sodomy, call it sodomy. Because it's a good gift of God to feel the weight of the shame of the sin. Name it for what it is. We soften those words in the church today. Why? Because we want to avoid shame at all costs. So first, use the biblical words for sin. Do not be ashamed of Jesus' words. Second, in your own life, where you have ongoing sin... Don't be too quick to wiggle off shame there. Yes, God loves you. Yes, he is committed to you. Yes, the blood of Jesus washes away all of your sin. But you have to be really careful not to apply the balm of the gospel before you've let shame do its work. This takes some sensitivity and some wisdom. Pastorally, parentally, one of the tight ropes anybody in any kind of authority walks with people that rely on them is we have to let shame do its work. We have to let them feel the weight of it and not too quickly bring comfort. There are Christians who sometimes consistently doubt whether or not they're saved. And one of the things pastors have to wrestle with is how quickly do I convince them that they are or how, do, how long do I just let them continue in that doubt because that doubt is doing good work in their life. And you want them to feel better about it. You want them to know the comfort of God, but maybe they need that work, that shame, that doubt, that fear to do some good work. Parents sometimes fail of consistently covering over the failures of their children. They don't let them experience the consequences and shame of their sin. Pastors can do it. Spouses can do it. So one, use the biblical terminology for sin. Second, let shame do its work. So Paul uses this term shame. 
It's a good gift of God. That's what I want to get in your head. It's a good gift of God. I had more to say there, but I got to move on. So Paul has, in the first 34 verses, just simply said, there is bodily resurrection from the dead. I, I hope I've gotten this through your head. I'm not just saying there's resurrection from the dead. I'm saying that your physical body, you, will be raised from the dead. You understand? It's not just a spiritual ghost-like thing. This is bones and ligaments and blood vessels and hair and hair and ears and eyes and noses and toes and toenails, cells resurrected. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead in the first 34 verses, so all who are in Christ will be raised as well. And then in verse 35, Paul anticipates two questions. Someone will ask, now, you have to hear the sarcasm in this verse. Paul isn't anticipating a well-intentioned question here. Paul knows people. He knows himself. He knows you. He knows me. We have to get wiser here. Why is this person, why is Paul thinking this person is asking these questions? They may have a sincere desire to know, but you know why people ask questions when you've taught them something that is biblically true. And the next thing they do is ask you a question. Why? Why? Because they don't want to deal with the truth. They want to wiggle off the hook always. Children do this constantly. They want to redirect. They want to mess with your authority. But someone will ask, okay, Paul, how are the dead raised? Right? I got you. They have hard hearts. Right? That's, that's the tone. Okay, Paul, what kind of body will they have? You know what Paul says? Fool! <laughs> he calls it what it is. You hard-hearted, pretentious little fool. <laughs> Don't you know yourself here? Why do you ask questions when somebody's told you the truth? Because you want to stay on top. Because you don't want the other person to see right, that they're right. You got to win. Okay, Paul. Right. How are the dead raised? What will they be like? <laughs> and Paul just, <laughs> what a fool you are. Now, that word fool is a really important biblical word. It doesn't just mean what we mean it. You silly little stinker. Or, you know, you, we just mean it as a slight. Paul means it biblically as a person who is warped by sin, 
we're so hard-hearted that they will not accept biblical teaching but always have something coming back. And so I, I wanted to draw this out because if you remember, not that you do, but I'm just going to remind you real quick. I didn't mainly choose to preach this book because of the doctrinal content. It's filled with really good doctrine. But I didn't choose 1 Corinthians because I wanted us to learn about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 or about male and female in 7 and 14 or even about resurrection of the dead. My main purpose in choosing to preach through 1 Corinthians 15 is to help you learn not only what a pastor should say, but how a pastor should say it. Because the church has almost zero tolerance for the Apostle Paul kind of pastoring anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Because the, you think you know what biblical preaching should be like, and, and lovingly, you don't have a clue. Isn't that really mean of me to say to you? You really don't know. You think you know, but you don't. Because you are utterly convinced that all the preaching should do is leave you feeling good. To encourage you, to stimulate you, to wow you with my anecdotes and stories and profound, deep insights and thinking, to titillate your mind. That's what you're convinced preaching should be. Preaching should keep people coming and nobody ever leaving. And then you come to the Apostle Paul, and he says in the space of three verses, you should be ashamed of yourself, you fool. And if the Apostle Paul was applying for our worship pastor position, and he submitted this sermon, and we heard that, and you were on the search committee, you would say, garbage. Right? Because he's mean. Because he doesn't know grace. That's what the American church is today. Apostle Paul need not apply here. Right? And so I wanted to preach this book, 16 chapters of it, to say that one thing. <laughs> Over the last three years, you've listened to this. And do you get it yet? <laughs> You hate it when I do that little laugh. I'm really trying not to do that. Roy, I'm really trying. I'm trying. All right, what about bodily resurrection? What about bodily resurrection? So Paul asks these two questions, how and what? How will the dead be raised? What kind of body will they have the how question he doesn't spend much time on. He does spend a lot of time on what. The how, he just simply gives an example from nature, which is perfect this time of year. You know, I planned it three years ago to be preaching this sermon in the springtime when you're planting. 
And if you believe that. So he, he just uses a seed. And he does it for two purposes. One, seeds have to die in order to become something greater. Pretty simple, right? Yet, whatever kind of seed is planted, you're going to get that kind of plant. Make sense? I think what is really striking here is Paul doesn't go into some big, big, deep, biblical, theological teaching. He just says, just look at nature. How are they raised? Well, in the same way that you plant your tomato seeds and grow a tomato plant. You see it all the time. How can you ask this? He's really shaming them here. <laughs> so how will you be raised? Well, the same way that you're planting your garden. An acorn falls from an oak tree. A squirrel buries it. Forgets where he buries it. And a hundred years later, you have a massive oak. The seed had to be planted and die and become something like the seed, but so much greater. That's it. That's how. By the power of God, it's magic. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's stupendous. It's incredible. We see it all around us and we're so dull to it. All right, I said a few weeks ago that I would talk again about the need for Christian burial as opposed to cremation. And last time I did it, it really did upset some of you. And I think I could have done it better. And one of the main questions I got is, okay, show me it in Scripture. Show me why Christians bury and don't cremate from Scripture. And lovingly, here it is. Look at your garden. The analogy is our bodies go into the ground like seeds and they sprout infinitely more glorious and greater. This whole analogy is built on Christian burial, not cremation. And we could go back through tens and tens, which I've done with some of you, of biblical passages where in the Old Testament they took great care to always bury they spoke very badly of anything but burial. We could go to the New Testament where Jesus' body, at great risk and great care, sorry, COVID brain, what's the guy's name who buried Jesus' body? Joseph Arimathea, right? He, he did something very risky. He went way out of his way at great expense to make sure that Jesus' body got a proper Christian biblical burial. And his name made it in the Bible for that one thing. And then here. But one of the things we do as Christians, because we're so very earthly and worldly in our thinking, is that we just make it pragmatic. Well, God can raise a cremated body. Yeah, it's true. But what does that have to do with what the Bible says here? We don't make our 
main activities based on exceptions. We don't make the rules based on exceptions. We want to be faithful to Scripture. Now, when I, um, when I want to apply this, here's what I want to do. Some of you are further along in life. You've never heard this teaching before. You've made your plans to be buried you've bought, or to be cremated. You're, you've got it all done. And I wish you would bury, but I understand. Maybe if you've heard this 30 years ago, you'd have been very open to it, but I get it. I'm probably not talking to you as much here, though I wish you would. God help me if I'm saying something that's squishy there. What I'm talking to here are younger Christians where the church used to teach us all the time, we haven't taught it anymore because we're not careful to be biblical. Those of you who don't even think about death much yet, I just want to get it in your brain and in your heart that Christians bury. Because that's what we do. It's a small thing overall. It's not a real big thing. But I think it betrays a kind of less than careful biblical heart. You know what I mean? All right, so how are we raised? Just like a seed in the ground, what will we be raised like? He uses the seed again, and then he uses a whole bunch of other different analogies. That is, the seed is smaller, and it has to die, but it's raised and much greater. So he does that. Look at verse 43. Our bodies are sown, planted, buried, dishonorably, weakly. They're natural. They're dust. But they'll be raised in glory, in power, spiritual that is lasting forever without fail of heaven. That's the detail. That's the amount of detail he gives you. So what will your body be like when you're raised? Well, it'll be you. It'll just be the far greater. <laughs> no more prone to the weaknesses you're now prone to. No more aging and sickness and temptation and dying. Perfect. Without sin or corruption. And this is all because of Christ. Our hope of being raised is a hope in Christ. We once were connected to the man of dust in verse 48, to the first man of earth, verse 47, verse 49, born of the image of the man of dust, Adam. And now we're connected to Christ by faith, who was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. That's us. That's what will happen to you when you die if you're in Christ. But your body must die for that to happen. There's an order here. These bodies are glorious, but they're of seed glory. They're of smaller glory. Our bodies in the resurrection will be of glorious, towering oak glory. Right? I don't think we can comprehend how much we've lost in the fall and how much we'll gain in the resurrection. 
But it's coming. It's coming for all who are in Christ. So if you're not in Christ, I urge you to come to him. And if you are in Christ, then delight. The glory coming will make all that you're going through now seem little. Okay. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us have faith to apply this good gift of shame. To understand how easy it is to buck against authority and how quick we can be to question rather than submit. And then to lose out thinking on the glories of the resurrection from the dead. That we are looking forward to a far greater, more glorious immortality, imperishable. It's a powerful. And so give us faith to receive these things, to cause it to live this life in more fear of you and more desire to please you and in looking to the resurrection, to doing whatever we can now for that day. And so God, grant your people even now to feel the weight of this, to not wiggle off the hook, to not go about the rest of their day or next week any different, to just dismiss this. And so God, bring it to bear in our lives, please. It may bear fruit to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.